Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Since 2014, women in California's prisons have filed hundreds of complaints of sexual abuse by guards, yet few officers have been prosecuted or fired. A new investigation for The Guardian sheds light on why, bringing forward the experiences of survivors and what they face when they try to report misconduct. Advocates are calling for independent investigations and an end to prison conditions that enable assaults. And with the arrest earlier this year of a former guard on 96 abuse charges, they're wondering if this time they'll be heard. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A three-part series by The Guardian finds that when women in California's prisons report sexual assault or abuse by guards, few officers face consequences, even when there's substantial evidence. This takes an immense toll on survivors who are often punished for coming forward. We learn more about the culture of silence in prisons that gets in the way of accountability and efforts by advocates to change this, like the group Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition. And I do want to remind listeners we'll be talking about sexual assault and abuse this hour, and they may find parts of this conversation disturbing. I'm joined now by Executive Director of the Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition, Amika Mota. Amika, welcome to Forum. Thank you, Mina. Thank you for having me. Good morning, all. Yeah, really glad to have you. Amika, tell us what Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition does. Yeah, well, uh, Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition, um, we are a coalition of system impacted and currently and formerly incarcerated women, girls, and trans people of all gender. We have about 5,000 members in the state of California, and we are working together to shift policy uh, narrative um, and to build power together um, to transform the experiences that we have experienced um, at navigating violence and poverty and institutions and systems, incarceration, transforming those experiences into power. Mm. 
And you were a founding member. So what was the need you were trying to address? What do women come to your coalition for? Yeah. Yes, I was a founding member. um, And the coalition was born in 2017. we were born out of the methodology of a sister organization of ours, the Young Women's Freedom Center. And we came together because we wanted to trans- to utilize the methodology of the center to create movement across the state of California. Um, so a lot of times we come together to um, be in space with others that have experienced things that we've experienced Um that have survived the underground street economy and navigated systems together. We come together to heal. Uh, We come together to be in space and to support each other. Um, And we come together to create a vision of the future that we want to see as impacted women. So when people, is it true that people often when they come out of prison contact you? Because while they were there, they had little opportunity to deal with trauma, to deal with the impacts of assault or abuse that they may have experienced at the hands of guards? Yes, it's very true that people reach out to us um, when they come home. Um, We often have people that come home that have experienced sexual violence or trauma while inside of a system that have never spoken about it until they get into space with us. We do also have current members that are incarcerated and are directly feeling the impacts of sexual violence in an institution now and are reaching out with um, incredible boldness uh, and willingness to talk about what's happening on the inside. It does require that. Why is it so hard to try to talk about this, draw attention to this, file complaints about this when you are in prison? Well, um, we are in systems that are designed to isolate us, uh, make us feel that we are alone and that we have no power and that our voices don't mean anything. Uh, Often when we are in those systems, we are told that Um, We won't be believed if we speak up, which is Mm. often true. And our power is off, uh, you know, often compared to our jailer's power. Um, And, you know, who would believe an incarcerated woman reporting versus um, a correctional officer? The power differential is massive between someone who is incarcerated and a guard. But what are other conditions that the women face, that listeners may not really think about, that make them so vulnerable to abuse? Yeah. Well, they control every move we make inside. And so not only are we, do they hold the keys to our eight-man cells in Chowchilla, um, but they also control our ability to stay connected to our families, so our ability to make phone calls, um, They also read and access our mail, so are able to control what comes in and out. Um, They have the power to allow us to uh, request bed moves if we need safe housing. Um, It's up to them whether or not they decide to move us. And a lot of the power that they hold, um, they feel that there is an exchange that's necessary for them to grant us really basic uh, privileges inside prison. Basic privileges like maybe adequate food if you're denied that kind Mm -hmm. of access, soap or medical care, things like that. Yep, and the ability to do laundry, the ability to have a visit and see our children, 
Um, you know, even the ability to just have our most basic things, the things you mentioned, food, hygiene, uh, often one of the a real common form of retaliation is uh, them tossing our cells, which means they come in and kind of take all of our stuff. Um, that's a very common form of retaliation. So the very basic things that we do have in there are also at risk um, if they think that we could potentially expose what's happening inside. And you were talking earlier about just they control communication with families and so forth. So then have they threatened to reduce that that contact with family members or kids or things like that oh, as a consequence of reporting? Absolutely. And it's actually one of the first methods of um, of reporting is actually what they do is separate us. And so if you are a victim or survivor that has reported sexual assault or abuse on the inside, um, what they do is move us into segregated housing um, isolation. And they say it's for our safety. But what that creates is uh, zero access to our families, our loved ones, reduced access to um, legal support, um, and increased surveillance. Um, and that is just part of the process that's already currently exists inside. You talked a little bit about how uh, a guard will say no one will believe you. You've also testified about being fed a narrative about what will happen, about how you'll be received if you do, in fact, complain. Do you want to say any more about that? I do. Um, I, I Just as a personal experience, something that I uh, directly experienced and is very common is the first day I arrived at prison from the county jail, um, the officers made sure before we had even gotten our bedroll or our new prison clothing um, to let us know that it was not a good idea to file a what they call snitch 02 or 602, which is any sort of complaint on an officer. And they let us know clearly that if we were to be the types that wrote that paperwork, that other people we are incarcerated with would automatically assume that we were um, a risk to everybody's safety. Can you tell us what kind of toll this can take mentally, physically? Oh, that's huge. Um, <clears throat> people are literally um, paralyzed with fear. Um, a lot of people are silent. I, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of people that are directly experiencing abuse never speak about it um, and, you know, often don't necessarily identify themselves as victims or survivors of assault. Um, it's very much normalized on the inside. Um, and by the time folks leave or actually hear about what potentially could be considered sexual harassment or assault and they realize that they have endured that well in a system, um, you know, a lot of people are just too traumatized to even talk about it and carry a lot of shame about what has happened. So, you know, we see people just generally silenced and um, and then, you know, people that are really have a lot of kind of threat about any future safety that could exist if they do report. 
We're talking with Amika Mota, Executive Director of Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have about the conditions in prison, especially for women who are experiencing abuse or assault at the hands of people in greater positions of power from them, positions like guards and other prison officers? You can join the conversation at 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord at KQED Forum. This issue is starting to get some media attention now, especially with the arrest of an officer earlier this year. And I'm wondering what your reaction to that is, Amika. Well, um, it it feels good to know that other people are paying attention. Um, it's a bit of a shame to us that it has to be a media splash about the arrest of an officer because we have been talking about this issue for decades. Uh, we have a pretty strong historical path of people that have been speaking out loudly and boldly and um, have received kind of no uh, response, uh, no interest from the legislature, not a lot of um, public, uh, you know, care or compassion to the issue. And so it, you know, it is interesting that it took the arrest of an officer um, for people to start paying a bit more attention and make some moves. Um, but we, you know, we don't feel attached to the criminalization of one individual officer as being um, the goal. What we want to happen is to create more safety for our folks that are inside currently, and we want to change the culture. And we've been talking about this for years. So we're glad that other people are interested in paying attention now, too. Yeah. But how would you characterize how long this has been going on? Uh, since the beginning of time, I, <laughs> I mean, I think that I have never met an incarcerated person um, that has not experienced sexual harassment or assault inside an institution. But we definitely have, you know, in 2016, the prison law office, you know, put out a pretty scathing report about sexual assault on the inside. In 2017, there is uh, litigation. Um, we organized around that litigation in a coalition called Me Too Behind Bars. Um, we have been actively pushing up against CDCR about practices um, rules and regulations, internal ones that we hoped that they would shift. And um, and most recently, the Legislative Women's Caucus uh, convened a hearing um, in response to the arrest of Officer Rodriguez. And so, you know, the, the legislature is paying close attention as well. And so we are grateful for that. Well, we'll learn more about Officer Rodriguez and about abuse in the prison system and what's being done after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're hearing this hour about the abuse that's taking place inside women's prisons across California, sometimes by the prison guards themselves, and the difficulties that survivors face when reporting it. We're talking with Amika Mota, Executive Director of Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition, and with you, our listeners. What questions do you have about conditions in prisons? What questions do you have about prison reform? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can post your thoughts or questions on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And I want to bring into the conversation now Sam Levin, Senior Criminal Justice Reporter for The Guardian U.S. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks to Amika for sharing her experiences. Yeah, you've spoken with several survivors for your piece, and the women who've described assault and abuse have described it as so common they felt it inescapable. What does the data you looked at say about how common this experience is for women in prison? Yeah, the data has repeatedly found that this is a systemic problem, that it happens across the institutions. You know, within California just last year, there were more than 800 complaints across the prison system of sexual misconduct by staff. And we know that the complaints that are officially recorded are a massive undercount because, as Amika was saying, there are many people who are just unable to come forward. It's too risky, too dangerous, and they just stay silent. So we know that this is a systemic issue in California and that it's a systemic issue across the country in women's prisons. Are there numbers to this? Yeah, so uh, across the country, we know that there are estimates suggesting you know more than 50,000 people a year experience sexual violence while incarcerated. And even that figure, which comes from national surveys of incarcerated people directly, is likely a massive undercount. Um, and so that's the prevalence that is believed to be the case across the country. But even beyond that... Um, We know that there are thousands of cases that are officially reported that the institutions themselves disclose. So everything suggests that this is happening on a large scale. And, you know, one other quick data point I can share is that, you know, the the federal government has found that in two thirds of the women's prisons, um, federal women's prisons, officers have sexually abused people um, in the last decade. So we know that this is happening all, all over these institutions and is, is a major, major problem. So you reported on the case of Gregory Rodriguez, a guard at the California Institute for Women, and also about the alleged extent of his predation, which is frankly shocking. But can you tell us what he did or what he's accused of doing? So Gregory Rodriguez is suspected of abusing at least 22 women over nearly a decade. Um, He is now being prosecuted for 96 abuse charges uh, against 13 women um, over nearly a decade. And so the, you know, records we reviewed in the criminal case and in civil cases and from the California Department of Corrections, you know, show that he targeted extremely vulnerable women 
um, often sort of luring them into spaces without cameras under the guise of saying they were needed for janitor services or, or other appointments that they didn't actually have, and then sexually abused them and, and coerced them into abuse. And, you know, we found, and one of the central questions we were trying to answer in this reporting was, you know, how did he get away with this conduct for so long? Um, and the reporting suggests that, you know, the California Department of Corrections, when they first learned of his reported abuse in 2014, did not hold him accountable and, on the contrary, punished the survivor in that case. So the woman who the system itself believed was being sexually abused by Gregory Rodriguez, she was placed in segregation and solitary confinement for months and nothing happened to Gregory Rodriguez. And he would go on to commit, you know, dozens of alleged sexual assaults after that. What finally led to his arrest? Women coming forward and sharing their stories, Um, you know, the Madera County District Attorney who's prosecuting this case, when I asked her that question, essentially said sometimes it does take one voice and one woman to come forward, and then there's a snowball effect. And so certainly people speaking up um, led to him being caught at the same time, there was significant evidence of, you know, what, what, what he was doing. And so in court, they've talked about some of his conduct being caught on camera, you know, not the explicit sexual abuse itself, but him, you know, leading women into certain rooms and, you know, other substantial evidence. But yeah, you've had uh, courageous women coming forward and, and sharing their stories with investigators and with criminal prosecutors, you know, despite the immense risk and fear of retaliation they faced. We're talking with Sam Levin, the senior criminal justice reporter for The Guardian, and his series is called Abuse Behind Bars. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Let me go to Teresa in Napa. Teresa, you're on. To ensure that everyone that I'm going to ensure that everyone that was sexually assaulted while in prison now or in the future, please God, no, but it's called PREA, Prison Rape Elimination Act. It was a tool for healing that was placed 20 years ago, bipartisan support signed by President Bush. But now there's in the Senate, uh, sponsored by Senators John Cornyn and Brian Schott, and also our California uh, Senator Alex Padilla is supportive. It's called SASIDA. It stands for Sexual Abuse Services in Detention. And it's very important because it's giving much more uh, grants to um, to counselors and people that come into the facilities and actually be able to speak confidentially with those who have been assaulted. And so it's a very, very important tool. And I believe it's going to pass, but it's very hard to say. As we well know, this is not a popular subject. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Teresa. And Mika, do you know about PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act? Priya and uh, most incarcerated people um, know of Priya. Yep, it's for, uh, very common, uh, commonly discussed. Um, we, uh, across the board, believe like it has not been an effective tool or process um, for us to safely report. Uh, just to give an example, often if folks are taken to do a pre- Priya interview or survey, um, often we are escorted to those interviews or surveys by officers that have assaulted us. Um, so most people do not feel comfortable truthfully answering uh, PREA interviews. Mm. Well, Linda writes, this is reminding me of the work Jackie Spear has done regarding sexual assaults within the military. She broke the power hold by creating another route for reporting incidents. 
Could Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition pattern a similar solution or, or work on that? I wonder, uh, Amika, another route for reporting incidents, is that one of the things that's trying to be achieved? Yes, we are currently working on that. Um, and I think that has been the topic of a lot of conversation that we are having with currently incarcerated people, um, is what what does safe reporting look like? Um, I also do want to say that not everybody that wants to talk about sexual assault necessarily wants to report. Yeah. Some people just want to talk about it and receive the support and the healing services that they need. But we are in communication with currently incarcerated folks to build out what that could look like. So Sam Levin, one of the, the women that the guard attacked was named Latasha Brown. Can you talk about what happened to her when she tried to report Officer Rodriguez? Yeah, Latasha has bravely spoken out about um, the experiences she's endured throughout her incarceration and abuse by multiple officers. And, you know, she has talked about the severe sort of consequences she faced after speaking out. And in the case of Gregory Rodriguez, she actually spoke to a civil attorney who was looking into um, doing civil cases against the state on behalf of survivors of Gregory Rodriguez. And after she had that conversation, she was placed in solitary confinement. And as Amika was saying, the, the system says, you know, that women are placed in segregation for their safety. But it's a horrific experience. And she talked about just the agony that she endured while in isolation after having suffered this abuse, which she believed was very clearly a retaliation for speaking up. And she said, you know, in some ways, being in isolation was even worse than the abuse I had endured um, because, you know, she's cut off from family and not able to have, you know, the kind of communication she would typically have if she was in more standard housing and, um, you know, did not have access to the kind of services and basic care she needed while she was in that position. And so she felt extremely dehumanized and, you know, like she was treated as like a suspect and not as someone who had been mistreated and abused by an officer of the state. Yeah, and you also report about how individuals, when trying to report abuse, they would have to almost admit to engaging in quote-unquote risky behaviors to get services that they were concerned about after an assault, say, STD or pregnancy testing. Yeah, I mean, almost every survivor I spoke to of abuse by Gregory Rodriguez and others said that they felt as if, you know, they were being interrogated and treated like a suspect. One of the earliest um, women who was abused by Gregory Rodriguez talked about, you know, going into that room and basically feeling like she was treated as someone who had committed a crime and she was, you know, going to potentially have her sentence lengthened because of a rules violation. And, you know, maybe she'll be accused of, you know, over familiarity, as, as the system says, with an officer, you know, as if, you know, she is to blame for the abuse um, when the Prison Rape Elimination Act and, you know, other laws in California make very clear that there's obviously no such thing as consent um, in a prison system and any sexual conduct is is sexual misconduct and is abuse. And so it's a massive deterrent to speaking out if you know you're going to go through that experience and not be believed and potentially suffer these really horrific life-altering consequences. We're talking with Sam Levin, who spoke with survivors of abuse for his series for The Guardian called Abuse Behind Bars. 
He's a senior criminal justice reporter for The Guardian U.S. and with Amika Mota, executive director of Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition, which helps survivors process trauma and is working to try to get systemic change in the prison system to reduce the kinds of conditions that lead to assaults and abuse inside California's prisons. Do you have experiences with California's prison system? What questions do you have about what happens there, about reform efforts? Have you ever tried to come forward, felt reluctant to come forward about official misconduct? What happened? You can share your experiences, your questions, your comments by emailing forum at kqed.org, calling 866-733-6786, or posting on our social channels at KQED Forum. Sam Brown told you that she had been assaulted by at least five correctional officers during her time behind bars and harassed by many more. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned is more and more reporting, especially about sort of systemic predation of women, is that there are always enablers. What did you find in your reporting? Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning of reporting on this, it was clear to us that someone who was abusing this many women over this um, amount of time was not doing that in isolation. You know, as Latasha Brown herself said in one quote to me, you know, it's not one bad apple, it's the system. And so the reporting on Gregory Rodriguez, the officer who is um, facing trial, specifically suggests that, you know, other officers knew about his conduct, whether, you know, knowing he was suspicious and doing nothing about it, um, or they helped facilitate you know, his um, time with women in isolated areas. And so that's certainly the the claims and allegations of many of the women who have come forward and filed lawsuits against the state. And so, you know, they've argued that this is a system that allowed him to get away with it. Um, And the warden himself, you know, approved sort of his overtime request so he could be in this specific room where many of the um, alleged assaults were committed. So at the highest level, you know, the women who've come forward have argued that the system condoned, allowed it, and in some cases even facilitated these assaults. And what kind of response did you get from CDCR, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, when you brought these findings to their attention? Yeah, so they've not commented on any of the sort of uh, specifics of his case, um, other than to say that, you know, in this sort of early um, investigation, they found they did not have enough evidence, you know, in this 2014 case where they did not punish Gregory Rodriguez and instead punished the victim. You know, they did not deny that that um, was their course of action, but they said, you know, the, the investigation was closed and they didn't have enough evidence. Um and, you know, they declined many, many interview requests over months, um, but they, you know, essentially say they take this very seriously and that they are taking some steps to make the process better. They've talked about rolling out body cameras as a deterrent, um, and they've talked about having more outside investigations, you know, outside of the institutions meant to be more independent. But the prison law office has found that, you know, those body cameras aren't always turned on um, and that, uh, you know, the sort of systemic problems continue um, and that there are investigations of serious sexual misconduct that continue to happen within the institutions by, you know, officers who might be friends and colleagues with the people accused of abuse. Mm. Yes, this listener writes, why can't prison personnel be required to wear body cams? And I'm wondering, Amika Moto, what you do think of that as a potential deterrent, 
especially in light of some of the things that uh, Sam is saying and whether you would add to that about its limitations. Yeah, absolutely. I am fresh from hearing the voices from the inside about what's happening with body cameras. And so mm. my understanding is that um, that they are required to wear body cameras, but they are most often never on. And so the policy that CDCR has um you know, written about body cameras leaves it vague enough to allow them to um, not keep them on. And so um, I heard from a lot of incarcerated people that they ask people even for escorts or really simple things to get to medical line. They ask the officers to turn the cameras on and um, they most often refuse. Mm. Well, Paul writes, if a valid complaint against a correctional officer is dismissed by higher-ups and the officer goes on to commit further violations, perhaps charging those superiors as accessories before the fact would encourage better scrutiny of these complaints. Also, maybe requiring officers to have body cams which are on during their entire shift would curtail abuse. A camera which is turned off could be considered prima facie evidence of wrongdoing. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Amika? Yeah, I mean, we that was definitely some of the feedback is we, we really want, um, you know, increased kind of regulation um, from CDCR about rema- leaving body cams on. It just makes sense. It really makes sense. I, ha- I did not hear one person that felt opposed to that in any way as far as incarcerated women go. And they actually thought it would help a lot of it would help catch a lot of the harassment that happens to even that is leading up to assault. So often the way that they talk to women um, and um, with this really derogatory language or very flirtatious or often those things are, are not captured, right? And so the desire from the inside was if these cams were on, we could begin to catch some of the harassment that often snowballs into assaults. Well, Scott and Martinez writes, I'm wondering what kind of efforts there's been to have more female correctional officers. Do your guests think that's a viable solution? Would that make things better or uphold the status quo, Amika? Yeah, I do definitely want to be clear that uh, sexual harassment and assault is not limited to male officers. Um, It's often experienced by female officers as well. Um, I have not heard good feedback from folks about reducing um, male officers and increasing female officers. Um, But I do think that there's definitely a dynamic that the majority of correctional officers at the women's prisons are um, men. And there is often this culture of a, a bit of an old boys club. So often female officers that are brought on kind of assimilate into that culture. I mean, we could kind of pick on one hand the female officers that we know um, that really actually stand up to the men. Again, Amika Mota is the head of Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition. Sam Levin is a senior criminal justice reporter for The Guardian. And we are talking about the abuse that's taking place inside California's women's prisons and what can be done about it. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking this hour about a series in The Guardian called Abuse Behind Bars. Sam Levin reported this. He's senior criminal justice reporter for The Guardian U.S. He spoke with survivors of prison abuse, many at the hands of prison guards, and many of whom are still incarcerated. Amika Mota is executive director of Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition. You, our listeners, are sharing your questions Your thoughts at 866-733-6786 by emailing them to forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum. What questions do you have for our guests? Do you have experiences with California's prison system that you want to share? Experiences of trying to come forward about official misconduct and complaints and what happened when you did? Thoughts about how the state's criminal justice system could do a better job of ensuring that uh, these kinds of abuses don't happen in the prison system. So we were talking earlier, Sam, about Latasha Brown, and I want to play a clip that uh, is a recording from a legislative hearing on sexual abuse in prison. This is in response to the arrest of Gregory Rodriguez. Latasha Brown testified that uh, she was not celebrating when she was told of the arrest of one of her abusers. No, I did not celebrate because, sure, when we experience harm, we want some accountability, some justice even. However, I don't think his punishment should be the final resolution because it's an amplified response to this one person's abuse, not a response to the systemic abuse. And we are talking about those systemic issues this hour. Sam, I did want to ask you a little bit about the challenges of investigating this and for uh, the women who are incarcerated being able to communicate with you. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges you faced here and what concerns still remain? Yeah, I mean, it's extremely challenging to do reporting on um, people who are incarcerated, including just because of the basic fact that, you know, all of your phone calls are recorded Anyone who has spoken to someone in California prisons is very familiar with the automated recording you'll get, you know, interrupted throughout the calls that say your calls are being monitored and recorded and you have these 15 minute increments that you can speak. Um, and so that's immediately a barrier. You know, anyone who decides to, to speak to a reporter in any capacity is taking a huge risk. Um, and the, the women I spoke to spoke out because it was that important to them and they wanted to let people know what's happening on the inside. And so I was fortunate to have some opportunities to actually 
meet um, Latasha specifically in person, um, just as a sort of a regular visitor, like any member of the public, where we could have longer conversations um, and, and actually connect face to face. But it's extremely challenging. And, you know, fear of retaliation is something that all of these um, women live with on a day to day basis, especially if they've come forward um, about the abuse they've endured. Can you say a little bit more about why there have been so few firings, prosecutions, and so on? So you have reported how women incarcerated in California prisons, despite all the things that we've heard about how hard it is to actually report, which can sometimes get in the way of being able to substantiate claims, but that despite that, that there have been hundreds of them. Uh, since 2014. But in that time, only four officers have been fired for sexual misconduct. And only four guards have been confirmed to have faced any criminal charges for their behavior. What are other aspects that go into the reality of very few consequences? Yeah, so the the data we looked at shows that, as you say, hundreds of people incarcerated in women's prisons have filed complaints of sexual misconduct, and the vast, vast majority of those are dismissed as unsubstantiated or unfounded. Um, So across the prison system, data from the last several years shows that 96% of cases that are resolved are treated as unsubstantiated or unfounded, meaning the prison system does not believe that it occurred or that there is evidence to substantiate that it happened. And so the vast majority of the cases just go nowhere, um, which, you know, can be an excruciating process for the women who are filing these claims and, and, you know, stepping forward. And it's just worth noting that we found many examples of cases in which there was substantial evidence, including officers, you know, who actually admitted to the conduct or wrote, you know, sexually explicit letters to the women and were still found to be unsubstantiated or not face charges. And so even if you have these small sliver of cases that are found to be substantiated by the prison system where they say, yes, this officer committed sexual misconduct against an incarcerated person in their custody, you then have prosecutors who will decline to file charges, whether they believe that it doesn't rise to the level of a criminal violation or they just don't file the charge. They think it's not a case they can win beyond, you know, reasonable doubt, et cetera. And so as a result, you know, you have the systemic problem and almost, you know, no officers facing, you know, substantial consequences for it. Amika, in in one of Sam's pieces, there was a Madera County district attorney who was prosecuting Rodriguez, Sally Moreno, who said, it's difficult to bring charges in these cases because, quote, the prisons are intentionally opaque. They prefer to handle their own business rather than have anybody do any real oversight. Can you talk about what that that looks like um, and your group's attempt to get independent oversight as a result? Yes, absolutely. So there, um, we have made a little bit of progress on um, some of the processes, um, one being that uh, internal services unit, which is internal to CDCR and the prisons, um, they are not now supposed to investigate staff mis- misconduct that is supposed to go outside of CDCR to the office uh, inspector general. Um but what the pro- problem is, is that it is still up to the warden of the prison to make the final determination um, in the investigation of the case. And as we have seen at both CCWF and Dublin, which is also a local federal prison, um, is that often wardens are implicated 
in the cover-ups of sexual assault and harassment in prisons. And so it is very much in-house still. And so we are really kind of pushing to uh, get that final disposition and determination of how cases are ruled on outside of the prison. The other thing is that we really believe that uh, independent oversight doesn't fully even exist now. So the OIG is not, we're we're not seeing what we want. And we really want people that are survivors of sexual violence um, and that really understand the dynamics and how to navigate uh, the internal culture to be part of um, oversight committees. Sam, did you speak to members of the Prison Guards Union? And when you did, what did they say? They declined to comment or did not respond to my inquiries. And so um, I did not hear from them. Um, But um, yeah, no, they have not spoken out on this issue. So, Amika, on Monday and Tuesday, you attended a town hall that included currently and formerly incarcerated women. I think you've referred to that a little bit here and there with some of the things that you've been hearing fresh from the inside, as you said. What is this town hall? What what are you what are you hoping will come from talking about what's happening on the inside? Yeah, well, this, you know, the town halls were born out of this working group that has been convened um, uh, through the legislature. And that um, these town halls were a step in the right direction in the sense that they are the first time uh, we have been able to access people on the inside with um, zero staff present. Uh, You know, the first two town halls were, like you said, Monday and Tuesday. And so we definitely experienced, um, it wasn't perfect. We definitely had some kind of staff observing, popping in and out. Um, But it felt like the first time this space was created where people on the inside had a different avenue to talk about sexual assault and harassment. And just to say that we... Um, you know, came into that town hall. There was a, about 15 formerly incarcerated uh, women and trans folks that had experienced the system themselves. And so we were able to kind of do a lot of small breakout groups and get in deep conversation. And the level of conversation that happened there amongst our own people was very different um, than what has ever happened before. So they felt very, um, you know, empowered about the idea that they actually had some uh, unsupervised, unrecorded, unmonitored conversation about what was currently happening on the inside. What we do hope is that they are going to be able to um, give some really direct feedback towards recommendations that we'll produce in this report in March of 2024 for the legislature. And we asked a lot about reporting uh, what would make folks feel safe, causes prevention, culture, and what services are currently there and what services are missing and that they want to see inside. What was that experience like for you? Um, I am still reeling off of the energy of that, really. I I think we all are. Um, It was very emotional. It was really hard for a lot of us um, to go inside and, you know, talk with the women that are currently enduring this abuse because it has not shifted. And I do want to say that loud and clear, the narrative is that since Rodriguez's arrest, nothing has changed. They feel very bold. They feel very confident that they will not be held accountable, the correctional officers. And so what I hear is that it is 
uh, business as usual on the inside and that, um, you know, the kind of ripple effect that we thought we may see uh, amongst officers after the arrest of Rodriguez is non-existent. They feel confident um, that they will not have to be accountable for actions that they have done in the past or for the way they're currently treating people. I want to remind listeners that you are listening to Forum. I mean, Kim. Why do they feel so confident? Do you know? Because they never have been held accountable. I mean, th- I think that the only process that's really happening is they're moved. Uh, they are not removed. I, let me say that they're moved, right? And so, um, many women yesterday were talking about the officers that had assaulted them that are still on the yard, that they still see day in and day out. Uh, They may have different staff assignments, but they are still there. Um, And that has often been the response of CDCR to uh, investigations of sexual assault, is that they move folks around, but they still stay in-house. They're often not fired. um, And, you know, no real kind of punishment or accountability. Hmm. Even though you are part of this working group that's been legislated to try to address issues of sexual assault and abuse in the prisons that CDCR has said that they will, you know, work with to be able to create change that's necessary, that this is a working group they are going to take seriously? Yes. Um, So what we do know, what we feel so far is that we have been um, sitting with a lot of the folks from administration uh, in Sacramento at CDCR. And one of the things that was really evident yesterday was that a lot of folks felt like, well, once our complaints and our voices actually make it to Sacramento, that's when we feel like there's actually some progress and we see some real, you know, folks communicating, accountability, um, but it often never makes it outside of the prison. And so the majority of complaints that people are filing inside, uh, they just don't make it out. And so that's one of the things that we're thinking a lot about is how we bridge the gap between uh, the individual prisons and the administrative um, branch of CDCR. And so I think that um, we feel uh, we feel hopeful um, in the sense that they are sitting at the table with us. Uh, we are, you know, formerly incarcerated people that lived in these prisons. Uh, we know who the officers are that are these kind of regular offenders, um, and we have a lot of information that we think will be very helpful in creating some uh, methods of true accountability and also. Uh, safety and security and healing for our sisters on the inside. This listener writes, I was falsely accused of violating state policies years ago. My rebuttal letter led to a purported review, which in turn resulted in a false report stating that I had eventually confessed. After all, most disheartening and disillusioning. These women have my utmost sympathy and respect. You touched on some of the changes that Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition is advocating for earlier in the show. Is there anything that you would like to just, you know, share about those? Or if there are people out there who do want to be able to work or support the things that you and survivors are saying they need, what are those things? 
Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, you touched on the kind of independent and external investigations into the staff abuse. Uh, that is a demand that we are calling for. Um, and we absolutely are calling for an expedited process for the release of survivors. You know, we know that 85% of incarcerated women have experienced sexual violence before entering systems. And the ones that are continuing to experience that while on the inside, there has to be a path out of that um, unsafe institution for them. We are also calling for an end of the practice of strip searches, which is a very common retaliatory uh, uh, step that further traumatizes victims. Um, and we really want survivors to be able to access community-based uh, health care and victim services that are completely independent from CDCR, and it just really does not exist right now. And Sam, what have you heard from advocates about uh, ways, things that CDCR can implement to reduce vulnerabilities? What have, what have, what would you add to this? Yeah, I mean, I think the expedited release of survivors, as Amika referenced, is something I hear often, especially from you know the the women themselves who have come forward, and you know some of whom are you know witnesses for the prosecution, you know, in a very very vulnerable position, and remain you know in the institution in the spaces every day where they suffered this abuse that the prison itself has you know for once actually acknowledged, and so I think you know their their hopes of getting a chance to come home. It is really, really paramount and is something that um, I hear all the time talking to, to those folks. Um, and yeah, I mean, just the, the, the need for these in independent investigations and to be supported when they, they speak out. And then I guess the last thing I'll, I'll say is just, you know, when we started the conversation talking about sort of the deprivation and the way that folks who are incarcerated just don't have the things they need to survive and that that as a result makes them vulnerable to this kind of abuse and coercion, I think addressing those systemic problems would go a long way to just improve their day-to-day -day life, make it so that they can regularly talk to their families and have the food and health care and medical supplies they need on, on a day-to-day -day basis so that guards can't use that lack of you know, resources against them. Do you think more women will come forward. You talked about how, Amika, that the right now, at least your sense from talking with the women who are incarcerated, that they do not feel like anything will change, that there's business. This will still be business as usual, and they will still be protected. But regardless, do you think more, more women will come forward now? I do. And I and they are coming forward. More women are coming forward. They're coming forward in different ways. So some people are stepping up and reporting. Um, and also, like, you know, in these small groups, in these town halls in the last two days, you know, we had kind of long-term survivors of incarceration that have been down 20, 30 years that are talking about things that happened to them 15 years ago without the intent to report, but with wanting to kind of process it and, and talk about it with other people that have experienced it themselves. Mm. Amika Moda, thank you so much. Thank you. Amika Moda, Director of Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition. Sam Levin, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Read more of his reporting at Abuse Behind Bars. My thanks to Mark Nieto for producing today's segment. My thanks to listeners for their questions and comments. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.